Now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks that as we start a new year, we get to start it together. We get to begin with worship. We get to uh, come together and hear your word, to be fed at your table, to rejoice in song, to bring before you our petitions and prayers. And so, Father, receive our worship today. And we ask that as you receive our worship, that we would receive your word. Open our ears to hear the things that you've said to your churches in times past. Open our hearts and conform us to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few months ago, I made a decision. I determined that I was going to be better connected than I had been to the news, local news, local politics, what's going on in our communities, and, and just get a better understanding. Pay closer attention to what's going on around us locally. And one thing that I noticed um, every day, when I started reading the, the local paper every day, is how much the Wake County public school system dominates the local headlines. Every single day when you pick up the news and observer, there he is, uh, and, and that's maybe a slight exaggeration. At least every other day, there's something in the main section, if not every day, often, there's something about the Wake County public school system. It's eye-opening to me that an, an institution so far out of my uh, daily conscious thought was this newsworthy, but, but it makes sense. I get it. I understand why people depend upon it. But, but what continues to amaze me is the substance of the discussion being had within the context of public education. And you can, all, you can summarize it under, under a simple heading, and I'm not being charitable when I say this, but it, it, the summary of, of all the news is abdication of parental duty. You could stamp that on every single uh, news story, every single headline. And I wanted to give you a few examples. Um, I'm just going to give you one right now, just one story um, from a couple of weeks ago. Disciplinary issues in local schools are on the rise for infractions related to electronic cigarettes. You know what those are, right? They, they have, they're not um, cigarettes you light. I guess they have a battery in them. And these things are off limits on campuses. They're not supposed to have them. And yet students are getting caught using them in exponentially increasing numbers. And so there are fears about the student's health and the disruption and the, the harmful effects 
um, all the way around. That's the crisis. The crisis is this, increasing disciplinary in, in, uh, measures against use of these and they don't belong on campus. Okay, that's the crisis. What are the solutions? Well, the Wake County Health Department needs to provide more training and more resources to teachers and students regarding the harmful effects of electronic cigarettes. That's one thing. The schools need to put up more signs warning students of the dangers. School officials are calling on the state and national government to put stiffer penalties in places for retailers who sell to minors. Retailers and manufacturers are rebuked for selling kid-friendly flavors, uh, flavors of the of the vapor, whatever they put in it. And this is how we're going to solve the problem. It's a it's a it's a multi-directional, complete coverage, complete overwhelming uh, uh, frontal assault on the problem. That's that's what that's what we're going to do. Does that cover everything? Does that get it all? Is that is that all we need? <laughs> is that uh, who's missing? Well, daddy is missing. Where's, where's daddy? Where's, where's mama? Everyone from the congressman to the superintendent to the gas station owner is responsible for controlling the child's behavior except the child and their parents. Authority and responsibility is surrendered to the government institution. And not one syllable anywhere uh, uh, of the news story attributed any duty to the parents and certainly not the children. Um, I had a couple other, but I'm, I'm just going to skip right to the point. We, we can look at these and, and you could also name a litany of data points indicating that we live in a society of people who have not been trained to think for themselves. They have not been trained to discipline themselves. And those people are raising yet another generation of people who cannot think for themselves or discipline themselves. They are trained, rather, to defer duty and to defer responsibility to other people. It's other people's problems to take care of me and to clean up my messes. I can only follow the impulses of my nature and do whatever I feel like I have to do uh, and I must do because of who I am. But if I make a mess or if I end up with unhappy consequences, then it's up to the state or the state's institutions to take care of me. So when it comes to discipline and order and formation of life, we rely primarily upon the state's expression of government, not the family, certainly not the church. We're, we're hard at work corrupting both the family and the church. When something is wrong, we expect the state to fix it. And, and these institutions gladly respond. The state is my shepherd, I shall not want. The state is, the state is my daddy, and he's going to take care of me. Well, we see this, and I pray that, that we all see right through this, right? I mean, we see that's, that's a deal, that's real, and that's a problem. Well, Christians in the first century lived in a generation with similar uh, uh, kinds of temptations and compulsions. The all-consuming Roman Empire had not just become an intellectual idol, a philosophical idol, but an outright cult with temples and liturgies and sacrifices, Caesar proclaiming himself to be Lord and Savior of the world. There are other gods in the pantheon, but Caesar was king of kings and God of gods. Make no mistake about who is God. Uh, you can play around with Jupiter and you can play around with Mars, but Caesar, we all know Caesar is God. And this affected every dimension of life commerce, education, family. You can't buy or sell without a little pinch of incense, without a little dash of idolatry thrown in. Everywhere you go to shop or visit or, or uh, see friends or family or to work, there are constant reminders of the corrupt influences of paganism and statism 
and you are expected to participate. You were expected to just go along and fornicate and eat things offered to idols. It was just part of doing business. And so for these Christians in this context, to whom these letters are being written to, the letters that we're reading in the New Testament, for these Christians, their trust in Jesus put them in direct daily conflict with the institutions of their day. And it affected their peace and their safety. It highly impacted their ability to put a roof over their heads and put food in their children's bellies. That was how uh, 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 all-consuming Romans, uh, Rome's influence was and the expectation to worship like a Roman and be like a Roman. Well, last time we were in the book of Revelation, we studied the theme that all of life is hierarchical and God ordained the state and the family and the church and gave them powers But building on that, God has also limited all human authority. No human authority is absolute. No human authority can set itself up as God and say, there's nothing above me. You've got to do what I say and you've got to worship me. No human authority is given that authority. And so when human authorities overrun their jurisdictions, they're judged and put back in their place. The, The solution is not the elimination of authority. That's not the solution, but a proper exercise, a biblical lawful exercise of authority. So faithfulness for these first century Christians in Asia Minor, to whom these seven letters are written in the beginning of Revelation, faithfulness means not depending upon the state to do their thinking for them, not to be conformed to the values of the empire. That was what faithfulness was, but faithfulness came with an economic price. They were severely persecuted. And to these churches serving in this social, political, religious climate, Jesus reveals himself in all of his glory and in all of his majesty to be the king who is the beginning and the end, the ruler of all kings and kingdoms of the earth. He is the source of all power and authority and government. And over the course of these seven short letters, Jesus visits these churches one by one to encourage them to stand fast with him against their foes And he also comes to correct them. He also comes to set things right, to call them repentance in those areas where they had fallen under the influence of their pagan statist society. Well, last time we were together, we... Uh, in Revelation. I breezed through the first three letters. Today, I just want to slow down and focus on one, the one in the middle, the letter to Thyatira, because I want to give you a greater sense of the climate and the context of these letters. Understand what's at stake and see how Jesus addresses these needs and these issues, because these letters set the tone for the whole book of Revelation. It's Uh, It's not helpful to just kind of skim past those and say, oh, these are just more epistles. Let's get to the the other stuff. The questions that we're going to deal with throughout the rest of Revelation are set up here in these seven, seven letters because what is under consideration throughout the whole book of Revelation, what is under consideration is the question of who is in charge, who rules, who is king, and who is God. That is what is under consideration throughout the entire book of Revelation. Uh, You come to the book of Revelation to ask, you know, what's the mark of the beast and who are the four horsemen? And what you get is a civics lesson in Revelation. It's all about government and it's all about rule. So in chapter one, we saw this awe-inspiring view, this vision of Jesus as the son of man, And at the start of this letter to Thyatira, he refers to himself as the son of God with eyes of fire and feet like burnished brass. These these two titles, son of man, 
son of God. These two titles are very familiar to us. Um, And we think of these as titles, son of man, son of God, as titles which refer to Jesus's humanity and which refer to his divinity. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God. And that's true. That is absolutely true. Jesus is is fully uh, man and God. But more than that, these two titles, son of man, son of God, are specific titles referring to his royalty. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel is the son of God. The, the, the king is always referred to as the son of God. This is true in God's kingdom, but it was also assumed in all the ancient pagan kingdoms. The king of Syria was Ben-Hadad. What does that mean? Ben-Hadad. Uh, ben means son. Hadad is their God. Uh, that means son of Hadad, son of, son of God. Uh, Ben-Hadad. Abimelech means my daddy is the king. Abi means daddy. Melech is king. Melech, Molech. Molech is the king, the god. My father is Molech. Abimelech, throughout the Old Testament, there are various kings named Abimelech, and he means uh, my father is the divine king. My father is God. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, he was deified as the divine Julius. When um, Julius Caesar died, he was called the Divus Julius. And his son Augustus was known as Divi Filius. He was the son of the God. So, so this is all over paganism, that, that the king is also the son of God, that the king is also uh, deified. He is a, a human God. It's all over paganism, but this is a counterfeit of the real thing. So in 2 Samuel 7, 14, God promises David that he's going to set up an everlasting kingdom. And this is what God says about the king. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, now you and I read that. We look at that and say, oh yeah, that's talking about Jesus. Well, it is talking about Jesus, but it's also talking about David and Solomon and all the other faithful kings, that that the faithful king is the son of God. Uh, In Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The, the, uh, God's son is the king. The king is God's son. Again, you say, well, Psalm 2 is talking about Jesus. It is, but it's also talking about David and faithful king. So the, the son of God, son of God is a royal title. It's talking about uh, the, the king. The son of man is similar to that. When you see son of man, what that means is son of Son of the man. Who is the man? The man is the king. The son of man is the title that Jesus used most often for himself in the Gospels. Over, over 80 times, Jesus calls himself the son of man. And every time he says, every time he calls himself the son of man, everybody knows what he's talking about. He's calling himself the prince. He's calling himself the son of David, the heir of David, the true king of Israel. So when Jesus presents himself in Revelation, he comes as the son of God. He comes as the son of man. Therefore, he is the king. Therefore, he rules the nations. And we come to find over the course of these letters that he shares this rule with us, with his people. He shares uh, his dominion and he gives us authority over all things. So when we read that we're sons of God, well, well, that means that we rule as well. In the previous letter to the church at Pergamos, Jesus said, I'm coming with a two-edged sword that I'm going to use against the heresies of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. 
when we get to Thyatira, he's not just wielding a sword. He's become a flaming sword. His eyes are full of fire and, and his feet are like burnished bronze. He is not, he, he's not to be dismissed or trifled with. He is a force. He comes to take care of business when he comes to Thyatira. This is D-Day when Jesus shows up. At Thyatira, his fiery eyes can see into minds and hearts. In verse 23, he says, I am he who searches the minds and, and hearts. He can see your thoughts and he can see your intentions and your motivations. He can see the reasons behind the reasons for what you say, uh, you say and what you think and do. He can see the hidden corruption of your heart. Nothing escapes his gaze. Don't ever think you're getting away with anything. His eyes penetrate and can see into the innermost part of your being. And because of this, because he can see everything, because he knows everything, he can say this with confidence. He says, I know your works. He comes aflame to Thyatira. He comes and he says in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more uh, than the first. There's some encouragement that they're improving and they're growing. And Jesus takes notice of that. He doesn't, he doesn't miss it when, when you finally conquer a, a little thing that you've been struggling with and then you're tempted again. You're like, no, I don't want that. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to engage with that. I'm done with that. I've overcome that. Jesus takes notice. He said, I see it. That doesn't escape, escape his vision. You think, well, he only sees the bad stuff. He sees the good and he rejoices when there is improvement. And when you grow and increase in faithfulness, well, he says, I see that you're doing this. Your last works are better than your first. You're growing up. But there's a problem also here. It's like they're the reverse of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was so determined to be doctrinally pure that they forgot how to love. But Thyatira has done such a good job of being loving and patient that they've tolerated false teachers and all sorts of wicked behavior. In verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, remember from the very beginning, we saw Revelation is written in a language of symbol. These things in the, in the very first verses, these things he sent and signified by his angel uh, to his servant John. Revelation is written in, uh, in a biblical symbolism, and so it requires our work to decode it. So what is he talking about? There's someone there named Jezebel. Well, there probably wasn't a woman in Thyatira named Jezebel, just like there wasn't a man named Balaam at Pergamos. But there was a man and there was a woman in these churches whose heresies and behavior mimic, imitate the heresies of Balaam and Jezebel. And so in order to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to go back and understand their stories. Now, this is a good place to point this out. These callbacks throughout these seven letters, these callbacks to important Old Testament subjects and symbols and figures are clues that these letters are more than just instruction to individual churches, which they are. They are instruction to individual churches, but they are also a chronological commentary on Israel's entire 
history. Now, you may have heard an interpretation of these letters before that say these seven letters lay out seven ages of the church, seven different eras of church history. So Ephesus is like the early church and Thyatira is like the medieval church and Laodicea is the present, present day church. And because we're in the Laodicean age, therefore we're living at the end of time and we're living at the end of history because there are no more church ages after this and we're uh, time's up. Well, I, I don't believe the last part's correct. But I do believe there is a historical, chronological progression to these seven letters, and it starts back in Genesis 1. So if you scan through and if you're looking, if you're following along in chapter, at the beginning of chapter 2, the letter of Ephesus, uh, the letter to Ephesus, starts us out in the garden. There's a tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God in the letter to the Ephesians. In Smyrna, the next letter, that puts us in the time of the patriarchs. There's references to prison and testing which result in a crown. You go through prison and you come out with a crown. Well, who does that sound like? It sounds like Joseph, doesn't it? And so we're in the time of the patriarchs uh, with, with Smyrna. Pergamus, the letter to Pergamus has references to the days of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. There are direct references to Balaam and, and, and Balak. There's manna. There's the high priest's breastplate referenced in Pergamus. Thyatira takes up the kingdom age. There's all this stuff about how God is king and how we rule. And this is where Jezebel shows up. Well, Jezebel shows up in the Old Testament during the kingdom era. And then Sardis has echoes of the Babylonian captivity. There's a faithful remnant in Sardis who need to hold out and strengthen what remains. Philadelphia is post-exilic. Uh, it has references to a new temple in a new city. And Laodicea <laughs> describes Israel in the first century, which is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, and they're about to be cast out. So these seven letters line up with the various ages in chronological order, ages of Israel's, Israel's history. So these letters have reference to and commentary on every phase of human history from creation to the first century. And because God is consistent, history tends to follow patterns. God is the God of history. God is the author of all human history. And so uh, he likes to set up and repeat patterns. The, the present day that we're living in is a product of earlier historical cycles and sequences. And our day will set up the stage for the next course of history. So when you look back at the Old Testament, you say, well, there was one exodus with Moses. There's only one exodus. But, but is there? No, the exodus motif is all over Scripture throughout history. Uh, even in our present day, there's this constant exile and restoration, this slavery, bondage, and, and release. And so, and so understanding this helps us to better understand and apply the Bible to our present world and our lives. So we read the Bible not as just these quaint stories, especially Old Testament, these quaint stories that are nice little Sunday school stories to engage our children and give them something to, uh, give them something to think about. Um, but these, these, these stories and these these accounts have application so that when we see someone acting like an Absalom, we say, oh, the guy's acting like an Absalom. And we know what happens to Absaloms. Or, you know, there's, there's, we're kind of living in a day where there are giants in the land. And we need, we need somebody to step up and be a Caleb. You see, that's how, we, that's how we understand and interpret and meditate on these Old Testament accounts. And we do that because that's what the Bible does. I always want to know, how does the Bible read the Bible? How does the New Testament read the Old Testament? And this is how it works. So somebody in Thyatira is being a Jezebel. What do we do with Jezebels? Well, we got to figure it out. Uh, somebody in this uh, Pergamos is being a Balaam. Well, what do you do with Balaams? Well, let's, let's figure this out. And so uh, with this, we can expect 
these historical uh, cycles that, that are laid out, we, we would expect that uh, they would repeat themselves in various ways throughout the century. So maybe, maybe we are living in a Laodicean age, or maybe we're living in a Thyatiran kind of environment. Maybe the United Methodist Church is going through a kind of a Thyatira uh, stage right now. Maybe some churches and denominations and some nations are in a Sardis situation, while others are more like Pergamos. All of human history and everything is held together by the sevenfold Spirit of God. Remember, he is called in Revelation 1, he's referred to as the sevenfold Spirit of God. The, seven, the, the Spirit of God who works in sevens, who hovered over the creation week, putting the cosmos together in seven stages. He could have spoken it all into, into existence at once. He chose not to. He wanted to do it in order, in seven specific, distinct uh, 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 sets of, of, of actions. He, he laid it out in, in sevens. And so whenever we see sevens, we say, ah, yeah, yeah, the Spirit's at work. Spirit's at work here. Well, what, what's he doing? We got to figure it out. What's the Spirit doing? There are even connections because of this. There are even connections between these seven letters and the seven days of creation. And I don't, we don't have time to develop it and, and flesh it all out here. But the first letter um, to Ephesus is full of light. The seventh, uh, at the end of the letter to Laodicea, is an invitation to rest. The letter to Thyatira is the fourth. And remember on the fourth day of creation, sun, moon, and stars were created to rule and they were created to govern. And Thyatira is all about governance and, and especially mentions the morning star. So if, if these letters match up to the days of creation, then we must be witnessing a new creation in these, in these um, uh, institutions and, and the kingdom that Jesus is building here and that he unveils throughout Revelation. Well, all these connections fill out and broaden the message of these letters. Uh, these letters are connected to creation. These letters are connected to history. And so back to the message to Thyatira. This church has a problem with a Jezebel. The first Jezebel was a foreign idolatrous woman who became the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel, in the days of Elijah and Elisha. The Old Testament calls Jezebel a sorceress. She led Ahab into open idolatry. In honor of his wife, Ahab builds a temple to Baal. He starts a school of Baal prophets. He causes Israel to commit fornication by pursuing false gods. They even try to unite the northern and southern kingdom around the temple of Baal with Baal worship at the center. But Ahab, wicked King Ahab, is slain in battle. And then a faithful man, Jehu, is raised up as commander of the Lord's army to destroy Ahab's house. Jehu kills Ahab's son, Jehoram, and then he goes to find Jezebel at the palace. She knows he's coming. She sees the dust of his chariot in the distance. She knows he's coming. And so she paints her eyes and she does her hair and she goes to the window to mock him, but also to seduce him as Jehu is coming. And, and Jehu, when he gets there, he looks up and he's not impressed at all by what she's done. Uh, he's not impressed by her looks. And he calls up to her servants and says, whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side or are you on her side? And they answer by throwing her out the window. That's how they answer their question, uh, uh, Jehu's question. And she's trampled by horses and eaten by dogs, just as Elisha the prophet had said, just as he prophesied. Well, that's the story of Jezebel. Now, Jesus uses her name now to describe what's going on in this church. There is a Jezebel who's calling herself a teacher, and, and Jesus says she's teaching and leading my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And even in the face of this, Jesus has been patient and been merciful. Verse 21, 
I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. God gave her time. God gives people time to repent. Which is why ordinarily when we're calling people to repentance, we ride the brakes as hard as we can. And I know sometimes it, it gets real frustrating. It's like, why, why don't you just kick this person out? Why don't you do something? Why can't we're, we're waiting. We also get frustrated with God when he allows the, the sinful to be prosperous. People live in open rebellion and they look just fine on the outside. And God says, I'm, I'm giving her time. God gave them more time. Uh, but you check back at a certain point and you say, oh yeah, well, time's up, time's, time's up. And that's, that's what it is here. Uh, time's over for Jezebel. In verse 22, indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who, uh, um, and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. What happened to the first Jezebel? She was cast out and her adult sons were killed. The same judgment is going to happen to this Jezebel. It's the same word. I will cast her out. I will cast her. I will throw her out. And where she's thrown, in, she's thrown into a sickbed. It's like there's this ironic sense of humor here that you like to go to bed. You like to go to bed to commit sin. Well, okay, so I'm going to throw you into bed, except it's going to be in your deathbed. That's the bed I'm going to, I'm going to throw you into. Um, the, the sin of the Thyatiran church is that they're allowing her to instigate idolatry and fornication and rebellion. And I'm sure there were some very pious sounding reasons for tolerating her, some very caring, compassionate justifications for putting up with her wickedness. But by putting up with her, they're hating the church and corrupting the witness of the church. So Jesus is going to be the new Jehu. He comes all aflame. He comes uh, in, uh, arrayed in, in battle formation. He's coming to be the new Jehu who casts her out and her disciples out of this church. Now, this Jezebel commentary is also a reference to what is happening in Jerusalem and what's about to happen in Jerusalem within a few years from the writing of Revelation, because Israel has become like an idolatrous harlot. You know, throughout the Old Testament prophets, uh, adultery is, is, is the language used of the prophets for idolatry. Uh, spiritual adultery um, is, is, is what idolatry is described as. So, Jeremiah, when he, Jer, uh, Jeremiah describes Israel before the first destruction of the temple, he compares the army of the Babylonians to Jehu, and he compares Jerusalem to Jezebel. Uh, Jeremiah compares Jerusalem to Jezebel. He says, when you're plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint. That's exactly what she did. Enlarged her eyes with paint. In vain, you will make yourself there. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. Now, that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. They were carried off into slavery. Now, first century Judaism is repeating history because instead of repenting and instead of accepting Jesus as king, they're ingratiating themselves to Rome and they're trying to paint themselves up and make themselves look good to the Romans who end up destroying them anyway, like Jehu did with Jezebel. This is Israel's spiritual condition. We saw a couple of weeks ago 
how far off the rails Judaism went when they rejected Jesus. The writers of the New Testament don't hesitate to compare Jerusalem to Egypt and to Babylon. They do it thematically over and over. Jerusalem is not a safe refuge for the church. It is a great wicked city. The city of Jerusalem is Jezebel. And that links these Jezebelites in Thyatira up with the Judaizers. Now, you think, how, how could this Jezebel, how could this be Judaizing? How could it be this tendency because uh, she uh, eats things sacrificed to idols and commits sexual immorality? That, doesn't, that was abhorrent to the Jews. They would never do that. They would be offended by this association. No Jew would make a little image and bow down to it. How were the Jews in the New Testament uh, idolaters? What was their idol? Well, the temple was one idol. They lost their minds when Jesus said he was going to, uh, tear down the temple, that it, was gonna, that it was gonna come down brick by brick. It was that statement that led to his crucifixion. But even that idol gets superseded on the day of Christ's crucifixion when they shout, we have no king but Caesar. It, it's that rejection of King Jesus where they cross the line and they take up emperor worship just like the rest of the Roman Empire. It's evident in the way they treat the church from there on out. In the book of Acts, every time uh, they get offended by the preaching of the gospel, the, the Jewish synagogues run to the Romans and they plead with the magistrate to do something about the church. They put their hope and trust in Caesar. And on the day when they were given a choice between Caesar or Jesus, they say Caesar. And they say Caesar every time when it comes time to make a decision. Is it Caesar or Jesus? It's, it's Caesar. And that's what these Jezebelites in the church of Thyatira ultimately are attempting these Christians to do, is to join the culture, to participate in the cult of Caesar, just as Israel did, to lose their distinction as a Christian church and just to dissolve into the mass of pagan humanity. And this is the same great temptation for the church today, to adopt pagan definitions and pagan values, to adopt pagan sexual morality and to lose everything that makes the church the church. And why not? Because what's the point in a day when the church is just uh, the, 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 the thing that gives you good feelings and warm thoughts, just the thing that uh, the, the, the church just supplies emotional stuff, all the stuff you can keep in your head and all the stuff you can keep to yourself. Thank you very much. That's what the church is in charge of. All the real stuff is the duty of the state. If there, there's a problem, the state will fix it. Well, Jesus speaks to those who haven't bought into the Jezebel lie in verse 24. I'm just going to read again the rest of the letter and make just a couple of quick uh, comments on it. Now, to, to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, who haven't, who haven't engaged in this deep wickedness, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have until you come. Just hold on. That's all you can do is hold on until I come in judgment. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I, I read Psalm two earlier, a little piece of it to uh, define what the son of God is. And here Jesus quotes from Psalm two and he declares his rule over the kingdoms of the world. His scepter is a rod of iron, which he shepherds the nations uh, with. Some of them need nudging. Some of them need to be smashed like clay pottery. If you oppose him, you get crushed. If you join him, you get to rule with him. And what Jesus says here is that against this domination, 
this, this oppression that you're experiencing in this, in this society, in this culture around you. I am the real king. I am the true shepherd. I, I rule, and here's the great part. You rule with me. Everything that Jesus has, he shares with his people. Everything Jesus possesses, he shares with his people. He has life. He gives us life. He has access to the Father. He gives us access to the Father. He gives us communion and fellowship and peace through the peace and communion and fellowship he has in the Trinity. And so because Jesus has been given the morning star, Jesus rules, he gives that rule to us, which means that you are more than conquerors. That means that you are sons of God, which means that you rule. We're not beholden to uh, 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 an, an over-dominating, uh, an, uh, uh, a jurisdiction, that, uh, uh, an authority that is run over the banks of its jurisdiction to invade every part of our lives, to be our God and our shepherd. We, as a church and as families, have been given real authority and have been given real rule. And, I, uh, and, and so uh, in Jesus, uh, we have the confidence that we don't, we're not passive. We're not, we're not waiting for somebody else to fix our messes. We're not take, waiting for somebody else to take responsibility for us. In Jesus, we have authority and we take responsibility. There's so much more here. I'm going to stop at that point and we'll continue. We'll pick up next week and, and continue to build on this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and I pray that indeed you would uh, help us to recognize the authority and the, the strength and the power and the dominion you have ordained us with through our union with Christ. And so continue to strengthen us and build us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.